Hey everybody, Pastor Nate here. Uh, had a little bit of a technical glitch at the service today, so I just thought I'd take an opportunity to uh, just record the message in our new space, which is kind of fun. Um, but today we're going through Matthew 12 again, and uh, it's called The Suffering Servant. And I read earlier this week that an excellent plumber is infinitely more admirable than an incompetent theologian. Uh, the society that scorns excellence in plumbing, because plumbing is somewhat of a humble activity, but tolerates shoddiness in theology because it's an exalted activity, will have neither good plumbing nor good theology because neither its pipes nor its sermons will hold water. Uh, I thought that was kind of applicable uh, to what we're going to be talking about today because actually our water is getting turned on tomorrow here at the church. So a uh, pretty exciting turn of events as we get ready to start that chapter. Um, one of the major benefits, at least as I see it, uh, being a pastor is that I get to be in the Word all the time. Uh, I love to study, I love to read about the Lord, study about Jesus, try to understand the character of God. And we really just call that theology. That's really what theology is. It sounds like a real spiritual term, uh, but it's just studying God is what that is. Um, something really that all of his followers should want to do, right? I mean, if you love somebody, uh, you want to study them. You want to get to know their likes and their dislikes, uh, their hopes, their dreams, all of that. You make it a point to study that person. And if you stop studying, then things can become rather bland, right? Um, if you get distracted, we can kind of lose interest. And hence the importance of studying, whether it's studying the Lord or studying your spouse. Um, now, <clears throat> I'm not trying to sound super spiritual uh, because the temptation is at times when we study or when I study is to get so much into theology that we lose relationship. Um, if all I did was study my wife, Alicia, um, as interesting as that might be, um, if all I did was study and I never talked to her, our marriage wouldn't be doing very well. Paul said to the Corinthians that knowledge can puff us up. It can make us prideful, right? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge puffs us up, but love builds up. And our theology really has to be an even mix of learning and love. You know, if it's all learning, it's going to be kind of dry, but if it's all love, it's going to be kind of mushy and not real solid. So it needs to be learning and love. And I was thinking about that this morning as we were doing worship, that, you know, digging into the word when we get in here on Sundays, that that is learning about the Lord. And when we worship, we are loving on the Lord. So it really, when you're at church on Sunday, it's a perfect mix. Hopefully our theology is solid when we're mixing accurate learning and right attitude, loving on the Lord in worship. <clears throat> Well, there was a man who walked up to his pastor at church and he said, Pastor, I think this whole Christian walk boils down to basin theology. And the pastor said, basin theology, what do you mean? And he said, well, if you think about it, when Pilate had an opportunity to acquit Jesus, he asked for a basin of water and he washed his hands of the whole thing. But Jesus, the night before he died, took a basin and he got down on his hands and knee and his knees and he washed the disciples' feet. It all comes down to basin theology. Which one are you going to choose? And our Savior, when we study him, when we look at him, we discover that we need to become more and more of a servant because he was the servant of all. Jesus told his disciples, he said, if you guys want to be great, they were arguing about who was the greatest. All these disciples that are around Jesus arguing about which one of them was going to be the greatest. He said, if you guys want to be the greatest, you have to be the servant of all. 
and he modeled it for him. Jesus is the perfect picture of a servant. Um, He didn't wash his hands of them when they didn't understand his teachings or when they were arguing amongst each other, right? Or uh, when they had lapses in faith. He didn't wash his hands of them. Instead, he knelt down, took the lowest place, and washed their feet. The creator of the universe took the lowest place and washed the disciples' feet. He became the servant. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Isaiah 42 describes Jesus as God's chosen servant. Um, Last week, we talked about the Pharisees, the legalistic Pharisees, and how they were going after Jesus, and they were trying to um, convict him because of him and his disciples picking heads of grain as they're walking through the fields. And they're like, you guys are breaking the Sabbath. And so they were getting on Jesus about that because he wasn't keeping their man-made traditions and their rules. Um, This day of rest, this day of Sabbath that God had set aside and said, I want you to keep this holy. I want you to keep it a day where you rest, you cease from activity, and you focus on me. That's a day that it's supposed to be a Sabbath, where you rest physically, but you're also being refreshed spiritually. And this day that was supposed to be a day of rest had become anything but that, because the Pharisees had turned it into something that was very burdensome. In Psalm 103, David writes this, Let all that I am praise the Lord. With my whole heart I will praise His holy name. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things that He does for me. He forgives all my sins and heals all my diseases. He redeems me from death and crowns me with love and tender mercies. He fills my life with good things. My youth is renewed like the eagles. Physically and spiritually refreshed, but the Pharisees had made it something that was incredibly stressful, uh, no longer refreshing. And so Jesus tries to illustrate this for him, the spirit of the Sabbath, and he goes into their synagogue and he sees a man with a withered hand. And he goes in and he heals this man. He asked them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? They said, don't do anything. Jesus said, what about good works? Is it okay to do good works on the Sabbath? And he heals this man. And they became so enraged that he healed this man that they went out and started plotting on how they could destroy him. Listen, legalism always destroys grace. Always. Legalism always destroys grace. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are saved by grace through faith. We're saved by grace through faith. That simple verse, just like Jesus' simple uh, miracle to the man inside the synagogue, that simple verse caused a chasm in the church as Martin Luther was protesting against the Roman Catholic Church that was standing on a salvation by works. And Martin Luther said, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says grace. And it created this huge chasm. But legalism, like what the Pharisees had, is always going to destroy grace. And just before he died, Luther preached what would basically be his last sermon. It was a mini-sermon as he's laying on his deathbed. And that mini-sermon consisted of two texts. He quoted from the Psalms. Uh, 68 verse 19, blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. And then John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Our God indeed is a God of salvation. And that salvation comes through the work of his son. He bears us up and we're saved by his work. Okay, his work was finished on the cross, but he shows us, he continues to show us that becoming more and more like him requires being a servant. John Wesley provides probably the most convicting analysis of what it means to be a true servant. Here's what John Wesley said. He said, do all the good you can, by all the means you can, 
in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can as long as you can. I think that just about covers it. That's what being a true servant is. You're a servant all the time, right? If you want to know whether or not you're a servant, then just check your attitude when somebody treats you like one. When somebody treats you like a servant, what are you thinking? What are you feeling inside of you? And you can say, am I really a true servant? Our text for today is Matthew 12. We're going to do verses 15 through 21. Oh, let me get to it first because I went the other direction. Matthew 12, 15 through 21. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He'll not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. The first thing that Jesus did here when they marched out and they started plotting on how to destroy him is he withdrew. He pulled back. He went away. And we see this cycle in Jesus' ministry where he would go into a place and he would minister and he would preach and he would heal people. And some of them would believe. Some of them would trust in him as the Messiah. And then others would reject him, mostly the religious people. And then he would have to withdraw from there. And this cycle happened over and over and it became shorter the more that the opposition started to grow to his ministry. Um, In this verse, it says that he healed them all. As he withdrew, all the people came to him and he healed them all. He healed the ones that believed in him and he healed the ones who didn't believe in him. The Messiah was going to heal everybody regardless of um, whether or not they decided to follow him. Um, Those that would believe in him for the Messiah, those who would simply take their miracle and go home. On the Sermon on the Mount, it says that God causes the sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous, that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. God sheds his blessings on the believers and the unbelieving. And people look at this and they scratch their heads and they wonder, why do bad things happen to good people? Like, I don't understand it. Um, I have an aunt and she is one of the most generous, loving people that I have ever known. And but she has lived most of her life in pain, in very bad pain. And it doesn't make any sense to me. It's one of those things that makes me scratch my head and say, God, why do, good, why do bad things happen to good people? But really, the question should be, why do good things happen to bad people? Because the Bible tells us there are no good people. We're all actually bad people. It says that none of us have sought God on our own. We're all bad, sinful people, but God blesses us anyway. Whenever we're talking to unbelievers, one thing that you might say to them, especially somebody who's been incredibly blessed by God, and if you, if you tended to get a little bit jealous of the way God's blessed them, you can just ask them, man, you know what? God has really blessed you, hasn't he? God's really blessed you. Now, they may not understand that question because they may think that they've generated all their blessings, but maybe it gets them thinking, where do my blessings come from? A lot of times people aren't real grateful or even thoughtful of where the ways that God has blessed them. In Luke 17, there's 10 lepers who approach Jesus and they stay back because they had to stay back like a hundred feet from everybody else. And they're yelling at Jesus. They're like, master, have mercy on us. 
And Jesus looks at him and he does have mercy. He says, go show yourself to the priests. And so as they go, they're healed. There's a huge lesson here, whole nother sermon. But as they are going, they're healed, okay? As they are obeying Jesus, they're given life, new life in their skin, in their bodies. And if we will simply do what Jesus said, if we will be obedient to him, he's going to give us life when we follow his plan, his commands. But be that as it may, they head off and one of them looks down as they're going and notices that he's healed and he runs back to Jesus and he falls at his feet and he's thanking Jesus and he's praising God. And it tells us specifically that he was a Samaritan. Now the Samaritans and the Jews didn't get along. In fact, they hated each other. And Jesus is like, did only the Samaritan come back to give thanks? You know, he was the only one that got healed spiritually that day. Ten lepers got healed physically, but only one got healed in the way that it really only mattered, which was spiritually. Jesus healed a bunch of people, and then he said, don't make it known. Don't make me known to everybody else. Keep it quiet. Why does he do this? Now, it doesn't ever, it doesn't ever really read right to me when I read that, when Jesus says, don't tell anybody. The miracles legitimized right, his status as the Messiah. Because it's prophesied all throughout the Old Testament that one of the aspects of the Messiah's ministry is that he would heal people, that he would cure them from sicknesses, that he would raise the dead, that he would do all of these things. That would be one aspect of his ministry. But he didn't want the miracles to take place of the message. The message was the most important thing. He wanted everybody to keep it in perspective. And although they were evidence of his divine power and he had great compassion for the crowds, Jesus' main mission... His ministry was to save souls, not bodies. That was his main mission. Jesus wasn't into sensationalism, right? So anytime you see a ministry that emphasizes experience over salvation or wonders over the word, you got to be careful. You got to watch out. Because while the miracles are awesome, we need to keep it in perspective that the message is the most important thing. All of the people that Jesus healed died. All of them, even the ones that he raised from the dead, ended up dying again. So while the miracles are awesome, message can't get lost. That you have a sin debt. You have a debt that you cannot pay. There's nothing you can do. But Jesus steps up and he says, I will pay your debt. I'll pay it off. You just have to accept it. Imagine if somebody came to you and said, that, that loan debt that you have for your house, that's going to take you like 20, 30 years, maybe you're never going to pay it off. I'll step in and pay that for you. How much would you appreciate that person? How much would you want to honor that person? And yet Jesus steps in and says, I've made a way for you to be with me forever. All you have to do is accept it. Well, Matthew tells us the reason why Jesus wants them to keep it quiet. And these next four verses, which comes out of Isaiah 42. Behold, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Behold is a word that we really only read in scripture. Nobody goes around saying, behold, right? Not unless you're in theater. But it means more than just to glance quickly at something. It means more than just to look in a certain direction. It means to fix our eyes upon, to really scrutinize, to look carefully at. So the question is, what are we beholding? What are we beholding? What are we fixing our eyes on? Now, I like going out to Mardell's, right? Christian bookstore. 
tons of books out there, things on every single topic that you could imagine. Uh, plus it's next to Bass Pro Shop, uh, which is usually where I end up. But I like going into Mardell's and you can find something in there for just about anything. And when we hit difficult times in life, when we go through rough patches, our first instinct is probably to call somebody that we know to get advice. Or secondarily, we may go try to find a book. We may go try to find you know, 10 steps to this or eight principles to that. But God has a very specific agenda on where we need to fix our eyes, what we need to behold. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. The word behold here, if you look in your footnotes at the bottom, uh, there's probably a footnote that says, um, instead of beholding the glory, it's reflecting the glory of God. That's another translation of it, is reflecting the glory of God, which I think is really interesting because the more we look at him, the more we fix our eyes upon him, the more we want to be like him. And the more we're like him, the more we can reflect him to others around us. When Moses went up on the mountain for 40 days and, and God gave him the Ten Commandments, right? He's up there for 40 days. He's in the presence of the Lord. He's beholding the Lord. And when he came down the mountain, it says that he had to put a veil over his face because he was glowing, because his face was shining so much. He was reflecting God's glory. They had to put a veil over his face. And we, as Jesus followers, should want to be those that fix our eyes on him so much so that we are reflecting his image to people around us. Jesus told his disciples, he said, you are the light of the world. You guys are the light. But before that, he said, I am the light of the world. And so since we really have no light in and of ourselves, we are to be reflecting the light source. We are supposed to be reflecting the sun, the S-O-N. And to use an analogy that gets used a lot, just like the moon has no light in and of itself, it reflects the sun. As the sun shines on it, it reflects the light. And that's what we're supposed to do. But there's a problem because the sun can't always shine directly on the moon because the earth gets in the way. It gets eclipsed, right? So too with us. When the world gets in the way between us and the Lord, our relationship gets interrupted. It gets eclipsed. And then we don't reflect him the way that we're supposed to to the world around us. We're supposed to be those that reflect him. We're supposed to behold him and reflect his glory. So let's look at some of the characteristics of this one that we're supposed to behold. Um, The first is that he is appointed. It says here that, behold my servant whom I've chosen, I've appointed, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. Uh, Acts 4.12 tells us that there's no other name under heaven by which man must be saved. He is, is the only one. Jesus is the only one that's appointed. He's the one that's been appointed to take our sins. There have been many religious teachers throughout the years, many religious gurus who have said lots of wise things, uh, maybe given some very inspirational sayings on how to do life. But there's one thing that they cannot do. They still have a very big problem because they can't deal with our sin problem, our sin issue. There's nothing they can do about it. Jesus Christ is the only one that's been appointed to take care of our sin problem. Okay, you can go to all those other guys' tombs. They're all still occupied, not Jesus. Not only was he the perfect sacrifice for our sins, but he also made a way for us to follow him again. That's the kind of God I want to worship. That made a sacrifice for me, but also made a way for me to be with him after after he defeated death. Twice God the Father uses this phrase, showing us that Jesus has been appointed, his appointed servant. There was a time when Jesus took Peter, James, and John, 
and they went up on a mountain. And while they're up there, this event takes place that we call the transfiguration, where some of Jesus's glory starts to, starts to leak out, right? He starts to glow. And it says that his, light, his clothes turned into light and everything was shining. And then all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah show up and they're there talking with Jesus. And Peter freaks out. He's like, this is amazing. I want to stay in this place. I want to stay right here. Let's build a booth. Let's build a tent for Jesus and a tent for Moses and a tent for Elijah, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. They're all standing there and Peter's thinking about building a settlement there. He's like, we just need to stay in this place. And Peter gets interrupted by God. Kind of a, a bad day when you get interrupted by God when you're talking. And it says that a white cloud enveloped them. And then there was a, a voice that came from the cloud and it was God the Father saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him, Peter. Peter was saying, man, I want to stay in this moment. And God said, listen to Jesus and do what he says. And Jesus took them down the mountain, right? Great mountaintop experience. He says, we got to go down into the valley and walk it out. And I'll say this about all the places where the spirit is moving and breaking out and doing just incredible things in our country. Um, we want to stay in those moments. Of course we do, because it's a taste of heaven. It's a taste of eternity. He's planted eternity in our hearts. And when we're in those moments, we want to worship him. We want to pray with, um, praise him. And we want to stay there. But Jesus says, at some point, it's time to go back down the mountain. It's time to go live it out, boys. It's time to go back down to the valley. And all these people that are going to um, these places, they're traveling to where the Spirit is doing a wonderful thing. If they don't take it back to their day-to-day -day life and live it out, then they've just had a nice experience. They'll be just like the lepers who had their miracle and went on their way. They could just have their experience and go on their way. It needs to change us. The light that we've been exposed to needs to be reflected to everybody else in our daily life. And that's what we pray for in those revival settings, that the people who have been shown this incredible light as they fix their eyes upon Jesus would go back and live it out and reflect it to others. The other time we hear God the Father say this is at Jesus' baptism. Uh, Jesus walks up to his cousin John, and John's dunking heathens in the Jordan River, right? And he says, John, I need you to baptize me. And John's like, are you kidding me? Like, why would I baptize you? You need to baptize me. And Jesus is like, it's okay. I, I know. But right now we need to do this so that we can fulfill all righteousness. And so he baptizes Jesus. And when he comes out of the water, it says the Holy Spirit fell on him in the appearance of a dove. And then God the Father spoke out with an audible voice and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus was appointed. And here at his baptism, not only was he appointed, but he was also anointed. So he was appointed, but he was also anointed. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. <clears throat> After Jesus was baptized, and he was anointed. He started his three-year ministry here on earth. And here's the significance of the anointing. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. And as he grew up, his divine nature was one with the Spirit. But his human nature needed some help because he was fully God, but he was also fully man. It wasn't until he was 30 years old that the Spirit fell upon him. The Spirit fell upon him, and then he moved in a miraculous ministry. 
His divine nature was already one, but his human nature needed some help and the Holy Spirit fell upon him. If you're born again and Jesus Christ is your savior, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Um, giving you the supernatural ability to walk out this Christian life that is so unnatural, right? Um, but Jesus told his disciples, he said, at his ascension, he said, the Holy Spirit, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit falls upon you. And at that point, your ministry will see power. You'll be doing miracles. You'll be doing all kinds of incredible things. That happened in Acts 1. Here's an important truth that I want to point out. Jesus lived a sinless life, and he performed all of his miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit, okay? Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man. He was dependent upon the Holy Spirit in his life to guide him and to show him the Father's will. <clears throat> We're told that he was tempted in every way, just as we are. Uh, he had emotions. He was happy. He got sad. He experienced sorrow and pain. He was hungry, and he was thirsty. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus emptied himself. What did he empty himself of? Well, he didn't empty himself of his divinity, right? He's always God. He's fully God. He emptied himself of his divine prerogatives, um, his divine will to do whatever he wanted. He was going to do the will of the Father. He said it more than once. He said, I haven't come here to do my will. I've come here to do the will of the one who sent me. I've come to do the Father's will. So how did he know what the will of the Father was? Well, it was the guiding of the Holy Spirit. He was in tune with the Holy Spirit. And we tend to think, of course, I did when I was growing up that, you know, of course Jesus performed all those miracles. Of course he lived a sinless lifestyle. I mean, he's God, right? But he emptied himself of his divine prerogatives. He was fully human. He was reliant on the Holy Spirit to live out this life that you and I can't live on our own. He emptied himself so that he could be empowered by the Holy Spirit. If Jesus needed to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, how much more do you and I need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit? We're going to have a really difficult time walking out this Christian life if we don't do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. So how do we do that? Well, in Luke 11, Jesus tells a crowd, he said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more does your heavenly father know how to give good gifts or in one it says the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. And it really is that simple, gang. All we have to do is ask. All we have to do is ask him, Lord, please empower me to live this life that I'm supposed to live. Work things in me and through me that only you can do through the power of your spirit. Empower me to be this light that's supposed to be reflecting you to the world. All we have to do is ask and he will give the Holy Spirit to us. We need a fresh anointing of the Holy Spirit on a constant basis. You know why? Because we are cracked pots. Uh, Paul says that we have this treasure in jars of clay. So you and I are a bit of a crack pot and we leak, so we need a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit every single day. And if we ask for it, he's faithful to give it to us. Jesus proclaimed justice to the Gentiles. There was a Canaanite woman who was following Jesus once and she was, she was yelling out to him, you know, please heal my child. And Jesus says something really kind of tough to her. He says, listen, it's not right for me to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs because the Jews would call the Samaritans dogs. 
So kind of a rough thing. But she comes right back at him and she says, yes, but even the dogs get to eat the crumbs from the master's table. And Jesus is blown away by her faith. And he's like, man, your faith is awesome. So yes, your child will be healed. And it's interesting that Jesus said that because he did quite a bit of things for the Gentiles. Um, he met the Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, he healed this Canaanite woman's daughter. Uh, he healed the servant of the centurion. Uh, when he went over to the Sea of Galilee, he went over to the area of the Gadarenes and he was met by a demon-possessed man. Um, and Jesus cast the demons. It says that there was a legion of demons inside this man. Jesus cast them all out into that herd of pigs, if you remember that. First case of uh, deviled ham in the Bible, right there, as Jesus cast those out. But Jesus was doing things for the Gentile people. God told Abraham, he said, listen, Abe, through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Not just Israel, every nation on earth is going to be blessed through you. The Jewish people knew this. They knew the Old Testament scriptures, but they thought that the Messiah was going to be somebody who came um, and delivered them from the oppression of the Romans that was going to destroy the Gentiles militarily and was going to set up a physical kingdom here on earth. That's what they thought the Messiah was going to do. Even though throughout the Old Testament, it says that he is not just going to be the savior of the Jewish people. He's going to be the savior of the Gentiles too. He's going to preach justice and freedom to the Gentiles. And Jesus demonstrated that. He showed it to them and they resented him for it because they thought it was a form of blasphemy that God would save the Gentiles. And Jesus said, Watch me. That's <laughs> basically what Jesus said. <clears throat> Jesus' main task, reveal himself to the people of Israel. That was it. First and foremost, he went to the lost sheep of Israel, but they rejected him. And when they rejected him, he gave you and I, the church, the task of taking that message of redemption through the entire world, to the ends of the earth, he said. You and I, the church, because of their rejection, we've been grafted in, but we have to take that message out there. Jesus was also approachable. It says that he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Jesus didn't argue with people. You know, you never hear of Jesus shouting somebody down or arguing with them. Uh, too many times we see Christians arguing, right? Or being loud and obnoxious online, trying to persuade people to their point of view, using inflammatory speech, but that's not something that Jesus ever did. What did Jesus do? He simply presented the truth. He simply presented the truth. So um, Jesus spoke with dignity. He spoke with control. He simply gave them the truth. Whether or not they decided to believe it was on them. Solomon wrote this in Ecclesiastes 9.17. He said, better wisdom heard in quiet than the shouting of a ruler. Better to hear wisdom quietly than to get it from a shouting ruler. Okay, they say there's two things you shouldn't talk about in mixed company, especially at the families on the holidays. Shouldn't talk about politics or religion, right? Because people are always up for a fight when it comes to politics and religion. It's kind of a sad commentary when people are ready to fight when the topic of religion comes up. So how do we navigate that? Well, we simply present the truth, right? People ask you, what do you think about XYZ, right? And you simply say, you know what? I believe in the Bible. The Bible is my truth. It is the truth. And this is what the Bible has to say on it. And then at that point, if they don't want to accept it, if they want to argue, they're not arguing with you. They're arguing with God at that point because you have presented the truth. It's not your truth. It's God's truth. At that point, it's up to them. It's between them and God. <laughs> but 
for us to do that, folks, we need to know the truth. We can't present the truth if we don't know the truth. So I encourage you, get in the word. Know the truth so that you can present the truth. <clears throat> Jesus was approachable. Uh, he didn't argue with people. He didn't have his disciples running ahead of him, prepping the way, handing out flyers, getting billboards, letting people know he was coming. Um, he wasn't all about his own glory. He wasn't seeking glory for himself. The Pharisees and the rabbis of that day were really big into uh, gathering a following. They wanted to have as many people as possible. They were trying to recruit people um, to their methods, to their um, belief systems, to their interpretations of the scriptures. They were really into having a spotlight on them, but not Jesus. And, you know, what I see a lot today in the church in America with social media, which has taken this to um, heights that we never even could have dreamed is a lot of people saying, look at me. And not a lot of people saying, look at the savior. Not a lot of people pointing to the Lord, but trying to develop their own base, their own platform, um, their own, you know, circle that they can influence. That's not something that Jesus did. He was constantly pointing people to the father. If there was any person that was even remotely responsible for feeding 5,000 people with loaves and fish or healing people with deadly diseases or raising people from the dead. You can bet that they would probably be writing books or on speaking tours or selling movie rights, um, but not Jesus. Jesus was constantly pointing people towards the Father. We read about this multiple times where Jesus will go heal somebody or the disciples will heal somebody. and says immediately they gave glory to God. Immediately they gave glory to God who had given such power to a man, this man that it was the Messiah, Jesus. There was one time where <clears throat> Paul and Barnabas go into a city and they do some incredible miracles. And so they come back and all of a sudden the crowds are stirring. And one of the priests of the city, they think that they're gods that have been sent down from the heavens. And one of the priests is bringing an animal to sacrifice to them. And Paul and Barnabas run out in the streets. They start ripping their clothes because they're like, are you kidding me? This, this is not what we are. We are servants of God. We are not gods of, in and of ourselves. We're pointing everybody back to the Father. And that's what we should be doing as his followers. Not pointing to ourselves, not pointing to our church, but pointing them towards the Lord. This world is very impressed by celebrities. Um, sports and entertainment, definitely the gods of our culture. Uh, all you have to do is, is follow the money. Uh, when you look at the people that are the highest paid, um, it's, it's all the entertainment industry, right? That's where our money goes. Whatever is most important to you, a lot of times that's where your money goes, is your God, okay? That's the thing that's most, but most of those celebrities, they are not approachable at all. Right? These people that everybody prays and high, hold in such high regard are not approachable. The fact they have teams of people whose sole job it is to keep you away from them. Right? They are not approachable. That's why when it explodes on social media, when a celebrity makes a connection with a fan, when they make time for a fan, everybody gets pretty impressed by that because they're not approachable. But our Savior was. He was appointed by God. He was anointed by the Spirit, but he was also approachable and humble before men. There was actually a time where Jesus came into town and all of these kids started running up to him, uh, which really tells you all you need to know about the approachability of Jesus. All these kids are running up to him. And the disciples at this point think that they are the bodyguards. And they start to shoo these children away. And Jesus rebukes them strongly and says, don't you ever keep these kids from coming to me. Not ever. 
because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these, to these kids. If you're going to belong to the kingdom, if you want, you have to accept it with a childlike faith. You have to be just like a child and just like any good father gives access to his children. Our savior, Jesus, is approachable. We have access to him. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in help in time of need. Our savior is approachable. He's also affirming, hey, wait a minute, Nathan, what do you mean that our Savior is affirming? Well, that word affirming has been hijacked, and what it means in our culture today is that we are supporting people's decisions that are sinful, or lifestyles that don't line up with the Bible, affirming them. That is not what I'm talking about here, just to be absolutely clear. When Jesus would forgive people, uh, he would forgive them, and then he would say, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Well, what did he mean by that? Did those people ever sin again? Well, unfortunately, yeah, because we're sinners. Uh, we still wrestle with that for the entire, entirety of our lives until we get to heaven. Jesus meant leave that lifestyle, leave that destructive path that you're on, live according to God's plan. That's what he meant when he said, go and sin no more. Leave that sinful lifestyle. He wasn't affirming bad choices, right? But he affirms you and me. Here's what it says. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not put out. What does that mean? Well, there were lots of reeds growing all over Galilee. They would grow along the water. Um, they weren't really good for anything. Uh, they would grow up, and then they would wilt in the heat of the day. Uh, they would break really easily. In fact, the only thing that they ever used reeds for was to make flutes with. They'd make flutes. They were easily breakable. If they were bruised at all, they couldn't be used for anything. Okay? They were kind of useless. Wicks back then were made of lots of different things, but most of the time they were made of something called flax. They had quite a bit of that. And the problem with flax is that it didn't really burn that bright and it would burn really fast. And so it made it hard to keep that light lit. <clears throat> now, a smoldering wick is in a very precarious place because it's in danger of losing whatever heat or whatever light it's giving out at that moment. And there's lots of people that are in similar states. That's what the, uh, the reed and the smoldering wick stand for. They represent people, people that have been bruised emotionally or spiritually, even physically. They're weak and they're about to lose all hope, but God steps in. The prophecy that Jesus is fulfilling here speaks of his compassion and his care for the bruised reeds and the smoldering wicks in the world. Those that are frail, those that have been demoralized, those that have been exploited. Jesus cares for those people. That's what I mean when I say Jesus is affirming. He doesn't come down on us. He isn't hammering us saying, why aren't you stronger? Right? He doesn't get ticked at us saying, why aren't you burning brighter? That's not what our God does. He has compassion on us. I'm convinced that we expect way more of ourselves than God does. I think we expect way more of ourselves. He doesn't discard us because we're not what we think we should be. Okay. He loves us anyway. David writes this in Psalm 103. He said that the Lord knows our frames, that we are but dust. 
He knows we're dust. He knows that we are frail. He's not here to pound on us. He's here to uphold us. That's what grace is. Now, grace is not a license to sin. We don't abuse grace. Grace is unmerited, unearned favor towards the Lord. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what grace is. And because he cares for those that are bruised spiritually and are burned out emotionally, that should give us an incredible love for the Father, an incredible love for Jesus and wanting to be like him and live out of that love, live out of that appreciation for him and not take advantage of it. He loved a bunch of bruised, a bunch of washed out, burned out people like you and me. And that's called grace. One of the tragedies that we're seeing in our culture is really just the, the lack of respect, the lack of decency for human life. Uh, we've seen this with abortion for years, and now we have um, examples in Canada where they're legalizing euthanasia. So if you're depressed, if you are um, you know, just about done, your light's about burnout, you're you know, just about wasted, um, if you want to let it all go, they say, we'll help you. We'll help you put it out. We'll snuff out your life. We'll get rid of you. But the Lord says, I will uphold you. God doesn't smolder. He doesn't put out the smoldering wicks, right? He restores. He upholds. While the, words, while the world says, we'll go ahead and help you end it. We'll go ahead and help you snuff out that light. God says, I'm here to make you new. All right. Lastly, Jesus is able. He brings justice to victory and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. In Isaiah 42, it says that he will faithfully bring forth justice and he will not grow faint or discouraged. Now, because we expect so much of ourselves, um, oftentimes we become discouraged. I know I do because I start thinking, man, my, my prayer life isn't what it should be or my devotional life isn't what it could be. I ought to be witnessing more. Those are the things that go through my mind and I get discouraged. Um, but if the enemy can keep you and I bogged down in a legalistic form of religion, he can keep us from relationship with the Father. If we feel like we're under heavy burdens, right, we'll want to give up. But Jesus said, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you're feeling burdened by religion, that's not the yoke of Jesus. He says, my burden is light. Jesus never gets discouraged with me and he never gets discouraged with you either. Okay. Should we do all of those things that I mentioned? Should we read our Bible? Should we pray more and witness? Of course we should. But we're all in varying degrees of maturity in the Lord. We don't all live it out the same, but we're all following the one who lived it out perfectly. Because we can't do it perfectly. He came in here. He lived it out perfectly. And then the amazing thing is he offers us his righteousness. When Jesus would heal people back then, if you touched someone who was unclean, you were automatically unclean. But whenever Jesus healed somebody, whenever he touched an unclean person, his purity always transferred over to them. He never became unclean. And our uncleanness, Jesus offers us his righteousness, which is an incredible thing because we can't do it on our own. There's a great verse in Philippians 1.6 that says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Jesus isn't pacing the floors in heaven, okay? He's not wringing his hands, wondering whether or not you or I are going to make it, all right? He started this work inside of you. He can bring it to completion. He is able. He chose you, and he wants you to choose him as well. 
And when you do, he puts new life inside of you. Amazing things start to happen because the work of becoming like him begins. And I say work. A lot of times we get confused. We think it's our work. We get into this legalistic mindset. Paul told the Galatians, he said, you've been saved by grace. Are you now trying to perfect it by works? Come on, guys. That's not how this works. How this works. It's his work, not ours. Another wonderful verse for those who are pursuing the good shepherd is John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them from my hand. Jesus has you in his hand. Isaiah 49 says that we are written on his hands. And when we get to heaven, gang, and we get there and we run to our Savior, we're going to see how much he loves us on his hands. No one can take us out of his hand. We're secure in him because he is able. <clears throat> the first part of this that I talked about was behold, right? What are we beholding? What are we reflecting? That's where it starts. It's important for us to spend time thinking about Jesus, thinking about the characteristics that we talked about today, his nature. And when we do that, something happens inside of us. When I see Jesus in the word, right? When I meditate on his character, when I think about his personality, I read through the gospels and I behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I want to be more like him and I want to reflect him to other people. And I would encourage you this week to make beholding the Lord, your priority. Don't let the world get in the way. Or we can behold him so that we can reflect him to the world around us. Okay. He has been appointed to take our sins. He has been anointed, right? He's been anointed to and empowered by the Holy Spirit to live the life that we couldn't live out. He is approachable. We have access to him whenever we want. We can pray to him and then he is able he started this good work inside of us. He's able to bring it to completion. We don't need to fear. We don't need to fret because he is seated at the right hand of the father. He's not pacing the floors in heaven. He loves you and he'll bring it to completion. All we have to do is keep our eyes fixed on him. And when we do that, we will be changed day by day into his image and reflecting his glory to those around us. Amen. Amen. Have a good week.